and it's just a thrill, a delight. It's fun. I've looked forward to this, to have my friend Dr. Phil Carey back on the program. So to give you a little background, I first stumbled across Dr. Carey through the Great Teaching Company. I don't know if you can see this, Phil, but I printed out the whole thing and had it bound, and I listened to all your lectures that you did for the history of Christian theology, and then I came across his book, The Meaning of Protestant Theology, and read every page and marked it up, and then I came across a little popular book he wrote that I teased him. We've talked about this on In Context called Good News for Anxious Christians, this is a book I wish I had written before he got to it. That's a book, really, as I recall, it was kind of generated out of working with college students who had a lot of anxieties. Is that correct? Mostly. Also some colleagues and friends. Yep. Sure. So anyway, all the, all these will be in the show notes. But today, we're talking about a new book that he has written on the Nicene Creed. Before we start talking about the book in particular, you published with Lexham Press, our friends at Logos. Right. Tell me about that choice to do that. Well, what it is is that Lexham Press has been aggressively trying to publish really good stuff that builds up the church. One of the things you'll notice in this text, I was just, just as I was looking through it, it begins with a prayer. So the editor of the book wants to start Lexham Press books with prayers. The idea is that prayer and study go together. They're part of how we build up the Christian life. They're serious about scholarship that builds up the church. One of the editors, a guy named Todd Haynes, who's young and very aggressive, was pushing me to write a book for them. He wanted me to write a book called Gospel Ethics, which is now about one-third written. But I said, look, I'm glad to write such a book, but you know, you don't have a book on the Nicene Creed. You've got a book on the Apostles' Creed. You've got a book on the Ten Commandments. You've got a book on the Lord's Prayer, but not the Nicene Creed. You need a book on the Nicene Creed, Todd. <laughs> he readily agreed with me. He helped put the, the prayer together. And the other thing about Lexham Press, despite the fact that they originated in an online company, Logos Bible Software, mm -hmm. this is a really beautifully done book. Oh, um, and that's one of the things, I went ahead and bought the hard copy because the layout, which we'll talk about when we get to it, the way they did the, the creed, I kind of have a love-hate with it because uh. as your eyes get older, it's harder to read things that are on dark paper, but uh. artistically, it's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let me tell our friends who may not know who Phil Carey is. He's a philosopher married to a midwife, and I have to read his bio because it's clever. He thinks about the mysteries of life. She puts her hands on them. Bada boom. We like it. He and his wife have three sons, two grandchildren. His favorite theologian is Martin Luther, which means he feels quite comfortable in a high church Anglican congregation where they love both word and sacrament. And again, you can hear Phil when I interviewed him on his other texts, if you want to go back and see how he navigates that whole thing. Dr. Carey loves Luther because he thinks we know people by hearing their words, and that is how Luther taught us to know God. He wrote his dissertation at Yale and worked on a double degree in philosophy and religious studies in the early 90s. And, of course, the other book I didn't mention was Augustine. We talked about Augustine in an earlier podcast as well. He loves learning and by reading old books, and that's basically what he teaches. He writes, the best old book is, of course, the Scripture, which contains the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'll stop there with the bio, but I have grown to have a great love and appreciation for Dr. Carey, and he's always been willing to come on. So again, thanks for joining us today, Phil. 
Thanks for having me. Okay, you kind of already hinted about why you wrote the text and why you convinced Lexington to publish it. I want to begin by asking, for someone that doesn't know the Nicene Creed, I grew up Catholic, so we had an iteration of this. You, of course, are in a church that has iterations of it. But for a person that doesn't, help them understand why, what's a creed, and then I'm asking some specific questions about the authors of the creed. So first of all, what is a creed? What is credo? What does it mean? Right. So a creed is a confession of the faith, and it's a short confession. It's not like the Westminster Confession, which is maybe 20 pages long. This is – you can fit it on one page. You can recite it in about 60 seconds. It's often set to music. It is the most widely used confession of faith in all of the Christian world, the Nicene Creed is. Mm. And it's designed to give a fundamental summary of the gospel about who God is. And so it's always organized in threefold fashion, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's also what's called the Apostles' Creed, which is a different creed, mm -hmm. but again, organized in, in this Father, Son, Holy Spirit threefold fashion. And the two creeds, they dovetail. The Apostles' Creed is a bit earlier. The Nicene Creed is a bit longer and later and, and is dealing with a more fundamental metaphysical issue about the being of God. Most fundamentally, it is the confession of faith that is shared by more than a billion Christians. So if you're not saying the Nicene Creed every Sunday, then you're in the minority in the Christian world. Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholics and many Protestants will recite this creed every Sunday. All right. Before we go any further, I'm going to ask you to do a favor. Would you read the Nicene Creed for us? Oh, sure. I will read it in a form that is familiar to some people and not to others. Unfortunately, there's there's more than one translation. Sure. And we're going to talk about that. Yeah. Yep. We'll talk about that. So here is how the Nicene Creed sounds pretty much for most you know, Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, and many Protestants. I believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things seen and unseen, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, who is begotten of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, having the same being as the Father, through whom all things came to be, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and became human and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate, and suffered, and was buried, and rose again on the third day according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of the Father, and shall come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, of whose kingdom there shall be no end. And in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life who proceeds from the Father, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and co-glorified, who has spoken through the prophets in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And we confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. When these are written, you typically have councils, ergo Nicene. Right. So is there a James Madison, so to speak, of the Nicene Creed? No, not really. And that's an interesting point. The Creed of Nicaea in 325 in the Council of Nicaea was a shorter version of what I just read you, 
what I just read you came in 381 in the Council of Constantinople, which was sort of nailing down the, some details about the Nicene Creed. The original Creed of Nicaea in 325 was probably a baptismal creed from a local church. Each local church, each town, especially big cities like Rome and Antioch and Jerusalem, would have its own creed. Each creed would be three parts, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They weren't written down. They were handed down verbally because there was a, a whole church practice of not passing out creeds to pagans so that they could make fun of it. Mm. It was learned by heart, not written down. And so we don't really have a precursor to the Nicene Creed. It was probably some local church. And somebody at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD grabbed one of these local creeds, wrote it down, and then added a few bits in order to get rid of a heresy, which is what the Council of Nicaea was, was fighting about, was this heresy called Arianism. So you take this local baptismal creed, add a few things to get rid of, of this Arian heresy, and that becomes the Nicene Creed. I appreciate you bringing in Arius because that was a question I was going to ask later on. But since, since you brought it up, everything's written in a context. You bet. And even the churches I've been involved with, their statements of faith or doctrinal statements, or in the last decade, we've had to come out with statements on definition of men and women and the family and it and so yeah. forth. They're always in a context. And I, I try to teach that in a church setting to say, whenever you read something, there's a reason it was being put down right. in print, so to speak. Right. So Arius was an Alexandrian Egyptian priest, if I remember correctly. Yep. Give us a thumbnail of what his heresy was right. and what it became. Somewhere early in the fourth century, in the early 300s, there's this priest or presbyter, he would have been called, or right. elder, actually, in, in the Presbyterian sense, named Arius in Alexandria. And he was teaching that because the eternal son of God came from the father, he must have been created by the father. Mm -hmm. So therefore, there was once when he was not, that that was one of the famous things he said. He was a creature like other creatures. That once when he was not was really the kicker. That phrase was explicitly cursed by the Council of Nicaea in 325, saying, anathema to anyone who teaches that there was once when he was not. I should gloss that and say a little bit about that. I mean, Paul himself, in the letter to the Galatians, says, if anyone teaches you a different gospel, let him be anathema. anathema. Let, let that be cursing for that kind of teaching, because it's not the gospel. So what the Nicene fathers, or basically the bishops, gathered at the Council of Nicaea were saying is, this teaching is false teaching about who Jesus is. Let it be accursed, right? Let anyone who teaches it be under this anathema. And by the way, Arius was free to repent and believe right. the teaching of the church and the Bible and, and, and you know, give up this heresy. So it wasn't about cursing Arius. It was about cursing a teaching that leads us away from the true being about who Christ is. We don't have time in this visit to talk about the anathemas in the Council of Trent, but that would be one I would love to talk to you about. We might have a little different sparring opinion about it, but those were cursing the people that held to justification by faith alone apart from works. Let him be anathema. That happened with the Church of Rome in the 16th yeah. century, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. It, it's interesting. Well, let's go back to this creed. First of all, Latin English, you read a little different translation. If I remember your book correctly, there are essentially three creeds, 325, 381, and then later 451. And then, of course, churches, there's iterations, right, that, right. that we, 
can't track down. Most of these are for clarification, and the reason I ask about Latin to English, you and I dabble in Greek and Hebrew, and you more in Latin than me, but the point being, it's hard to translate, Phil. Yeah, some of this is hard to translate. Even the Latin is itself a translation, because the original treat is in Greek, and there are some variations, and there's some things that changed in the the Latin translation. So let me Uh, inject, let me interrupt, Philip. Go ahead. The average person in the average church is never going to go as deeply as you have gone. Mm-hmm. Help them understand, does this really matter? Because even in Bible translations, we have this debate over ESV, NASB, NIV, right. you know, so forth and so on, RSV. And I hate to take the Bible out of people's hands right. and say, you can't do this because Dr. Carey is the only one who can explain it. <laughs> that would be bad news indeed. But, but you see my point. Yeah. And, and, and we do this inadvertently. Right. When we say things like, well, it was from Greek and then it was Latin and now we have these English versions. Well, the flip side of this is that, of course, the Bible is itself written in Hebrew and Greek and actually a little Aramaic as well. And most of us don't know Hebrew. Many of us don't know Greek. Almost none of us know Aramaic these days. So what do we do? Well, we translate, you know, and we kind of have authorization for that at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit seems to be really into translation, right? You can (laughs) declare the good news of of God in any language in the world. But you do want to have a learned ministry, at least some ministers who know their languages, and can give you some pointers about what's going on in the Greek. So what we have, I think, in the Christian tradition is a long tradition of commentary about Scripture, including learned commentary by people who know the languages. We need that, right? We want people who, who can explain to us what's going on in the original languages. I think that by the grace of the Holy Spirit, a translation can be good enough. It can certainly be good enough to save someone's soul from sin, right? But in the church as a whole, in the church around the world, we're going to want people who can explain, oh, this is what's going on in the Greek. And this may have been what Jesus said in Aramaic, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So there's a place for scholars. It's secondary but it's something you need. So likewise, with the creed, I think any decent translation of the Nicene Creed is going to be good enough to teach you who God is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's really, really good. But it's nice to know a little bit about the Latin and the Greek now and then. And Mm -hmm. if you don't want to bother with it, don't bother with the book. But it's a short book, and you can learn a little bit about Latin and Greek if you want to. Well, it's a short book, and we're going to have links in the show notes if folks need it to to pick up the book. And I'm going to highly recommend this is the kind of book you can read it in 20 to 40 minutes, but you won't want to because you're going to go back to the creed and you're going to read what Dr. Carey has written about each of these terms. You've essentially done a very wonderful word study made it accessible to what I would call a 12th grade mind, so to speak, and <laughs> well, and also accessible to say, why do we say things? Back to my earlier comment, liturgy can be powerful, but it can also be repetitious. I have a yep. friend, you might know him, John Yates, who uh-huh. is a, a dear, dear friend. I told John many years ago, I said, the only Anglican I know that when he reads liturgy, it's as if you read it the first time and you mean it. There's a, a gifting, perhaps, and an art form and a discipline that we don't – because as a Catholic, Philip, I was doing the homine domi lamine, you know, and just cutting <laughs> through it. And you know, I could tell you the whole mass with my eyes closed even mm-hmm. today, but I didn't ponder. 
or uh, see good in it. It was just a religious exercise we did every day sometimes. So back to your book. One of the things I want to talk about, our time's running quickly, is begotten, not made. Uh-huh. And this, of course, is – and this is also iterative in different translations. But talk to us about why this is so important. Right. So that actually gets at the center of things. Remember Arius had said Arius. there was once when he was not. That suggested that the eternal son of God – Right, was created by God the Father, which meant there was once when he was not. Okay, let me interrupt you real quickly. Go ahead. Why would he go down that lane, Dr. Carey? It's because he thought of God as a kind of abstract first principle. Right, There's only one first principle. There can only be one first principle. There can't be two or three. And that first principle is going to look like a platonic first principle. Really, it's, it's a form of Platonism. And Mm -hmm. it generates or emanates a second divine level of being called the nous or the logos even, right? So if you were a a pagan Platonist and you heard about, well, in the beginning was the logos, you'd say, oh, yes, sure. There's the first principle called the one or the good, and then it emanates this logos, which is this kind of second and secondary Mm -hmm. divine level of being. And lots of Christians picked that up and said, oh, we like this notion of the Logos too, yeah? yeah? But Arius said, okay, well, let's be consistent, guys. If the Logos came from or originated from God the Father, then the Logos is subsequent. It comes after. And there was once when the Logos did not exist because, biblically speaking, only God is there at the beginning, and God created all things, and therefore the Logos must be one of the things God created. Therefore, the Son of God is one of the things God created, and there was once when he was not. The Nicene Creed is— how much heresy comes out of yeah. one uh-huh. misstep. Right. One misstep, one bit of false logic, but also a context in which with pagan Platonism as the fundamental thought form of most people at that time, it's very easy to make that misstep, right? And in fact, Arius was trying to bring the notion of creation back into this. Hmm. The problem was he brought the notion of creation all the way into the begetting of God. So this phrase, begotten, not made, could also be translated begotten, not created, because the eternal son of God is not created. He's not a creature. He is begotten, which is to say the relationship between the son and the father is like a relationship of a father begetting a son on earth. The strange thing is he's begotten before all ages. So the father originates the son at a – well, not at a time, right, but in eternity. Eternally begotten is how one translation has it, very commonly used translation, which suggests – Really, the key point goes back to Athanasius. The father has always been father. The father Mm -hmm. has never been without a son. There's no such thing as once when he was not. There's no Mm -hmm. such thing as once when the father was not the father. One more thing about that. The word begotten is kind of unfamiliar nowadays. It's actually a very ordinary, familiar thing, right? A A rooster begets a chick. A stallion begets a colt. The male parent begets the child. The mother conceives, the father begets. And so it's an actual ordinary biological term originally. If you read the King James Bible, everybody sort of begets, right? Abraham begets Isaac, Isaac begets Jacob. It's a biological term used in a metaphorical and incomprehensible way of something that happens Mm. outside of time. So 
when we say monogenes in <laughs> John 3.16, when we say right. eternally begotten of the right. Father, he preexisted. Right. He preexisted the whole creation. Yeah. yeah. And even preexisting is, is a funny notion. Yeah. He existed before there was any before or after. Before in existence. <laughs> right. Because, I mean, time, you can think of time as, as a sequence of before and after, right? It's a succession, like King Charles is, a, is right. in succession to Queen Elizabeth, right? One replaces the other. One moment replaces or succeeds mm -hmm. another. It's gone. The eternal mm -hmm. Son of God is there before any succession. Right. There's no before and after. Right. And so we have to picture an origination or coming into being that has always already taken place. And that means we have to picture something that's beyond picturing. And we're speaking of something that's beyond words. When the church fathers talk about the incomprehensibility of God, yes. this is exactly what they point to. Right. The eternal origination of the son from the father. Yeah. Because when we adhere language to it, we're, we already have a problem. Right. <laughs> right. Because language, human language belongs in time. Right? Yeah. Human language is not good at, at depicting eternity. You know, illustrations are three-legged at best. And I use an illustration of a, a piece of string that's one inch long, it's linear. And just like you said, human history occurs on that line. It can't go backwards unless you're mm -hmm. in science fiction. And so at some point in that string, you know, Christ came to earth. At some point in that string, we're born. And right. then I say, if you could imagine a sphere that is immeasurable mm -hmm. in which that one inch piece of string exists beyond, quote, space and time, close quote, then you have a three-legged illustration. Again, it ain't perfect, but it's a way of helping people understand he didn't just pre-exist that he's always existed. Right. Now, let me turn the heat up and ask you, did Jesus Christ have a corporeal existence eternally? Ah, there were some folks saying that in the 16th century, but they were marginal, and in, indeed, that is not what the Nicene Creed is saying, for sure. How does the Nicene Creed, because it gets the, the final yeah. part, of course, is the spirit. So yes. how does the Nicene Creed envision Christ then? Right. Because he comes to earth, he's born, but yet we have theophanies, or sometimes called Christophanies, right? Right, right. So one of the most helpful ways of thinking about it is a label from the Church Fathers. It speaks of his two births. There's the eternal birth and the birth in time, or the temporal birth. Temporal just means in time. So there's an eternal birth, temporal birth. The eternal birth is when he's eternally begotten from the Father, right? Begotten from the Father, not made, begotten not made. before all worlds, before all ages. Then there's the birth in time, the one we're familiar with from Luke 2. He's born of the Virgin Mary. This second birth is when he takes on human flesh. This second birth is when he is born as a human being. And it's just as truly human as, as your birth and mine. Whereas the eternal birth is something that's unique to the eternal son of God. So he's truly God because he's born eternally begotten from the father. And he's truly human because he's born from Mary about 2000 years ago. And those two births are actually the structure of the second article of the creed, right? The creed has three articles, father, son, and Holy spirit. The second article has really two parts. The first part is about that eternal birth there's no such thing as once when he was not. The second part of the second article is about his human birth, his temporal birth, which gives us Christ in the flesh. The eternal son of God did not have to take on flesh. When he was eternally begotten of the father, that was not as flesh, but as, as pure divinity. Right? Human flesh comes much later. Right? So if he makes man in his image... 
Right. And from Colossians, I see Jesus Christ sort of on his hands and feet making a sandman. I mean, the wordplay, Adam, is you can't right. miss it. From dirt, he forms a dirt man called Adam, and he breathes right. nephesh, the life breath, right. and he becomes a living being. So was Jesus in the garden creating Adam not a corporeal fleshly being? Indeed, not a f- corporeal fleshly being, because he was born of the Virgin Mary, and that happened quite a bit later. In his humanity, there was a time before he was born, just like all of us. In his divinity, he's always been there. Okay. Now, you raise the issue of, of the um, theophanies, it's called, right? There, there are appearances of God. Abraham has this conversation mm-hmm. with God on the road to Sodom, and they talk about the future of Sodom. And there were three men that Abraham showed this hospitality to. So there is a long tradition in Christian exegesis of Scripture which suggests that when the Lord appears visibly to, say, Abraham, and especially in this strange figure called the angel of the Lord, who mm-hmm. speaks for God and says, I, and it means God. Yeah. Right? This angel says, I, and, and it's God. That may be something like the pre-incarnate, prior to his being human, form of the eternal Son of God. That's a very common Christian reading of those things. Mm-hmm. It's contested. Augustine didn't like that reading. But right. you know, Irenaeus and probably Athanasius, people like that, did like that reading. What we are talking about is how is it that the eternal God manifests himself in time? Yes. We're going to have some puzzles about that. But meanwhile, we've got this extraordinary <laughs> biblical text. Well, could this be Abraham talking to Jesus before Jesus was ever human? Maybe. Yeah. See, I say yes. I'm not going to get a maybe on that one. All right. Well, okay. So you have Augustine against you, but I'm probably on the, on, on your side against Augustine on that. You know? so. uh, I think you said in your, one of your lectures, after Paul the Apostle, Augustine was the most important human or something to that effect. The most um, important Christian writer in the West. Yep. In the in East, the, they're, they're yes. almost all on your side on that. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, let's talk about, again, uh, going forward in the creed, Virgin Mary. Why is this important to bring the Virgin Mary into this? Right. Because we are talking about someone who's just as human as you and I are. Right? He has a mother. Now, it is a virgin birth, which is to say God brought it about. Right? It wasn't brought about by the will of the flesh, as, as John says. Her virginity means that, strikingly, she is an active partner in this in a very deep way. She has to say, behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to your word. She has to be someone who consents to this redemption through her body, right? So it's no longer, in her case, a a simple biological process. It is God himself choosing to become one of us, and he needs this partner to say, be it unto me according to your word. Here's a little bit of Latin that really is worth learning. When she says, be it unto me, according to your word, the Latin is fiat. That's the same word, which is the first word God says in the Latin Bible. Let there be light. Fiat lux, right? Her fiat is the first word of redemption. The way God's fiat in Genesis 1 is the first word of creation. So in the incarnation, God has a human partner, right? And her will is important to the establishment of our salvation. And that's, I think, extraordinarily beautiful. And this is one of the reasons why Catholics and Eastern Orthodox are just gaga over the Virgin Mary. So you wouldn't you wouldn't say that like the Abrahamic covenant or the Noahic covenant or the Davidic covenant or the new covenant, that God picked her 
whether she would have acknowledged that. See, I would see that as an acquiescence to God's message to her, but you're saying she had to say yes? Well, she could have said no, right? I mean, Abraham disobedience could have said is no. always Noah, possible. David right? could have said no. I mean, right. but the, the covenants, the unilateral covenants were going to be fulfilled, right? Ah, yes. God knows who his covenant partners are, and he chooses them wisely and well, right? <laughs> Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, so, so the Lord knew that Noah would be a good covenant partner. The Lord knew that this... This nobody, as she pretty much calls herself, right? She says, you know, he has looked down on on the lowliness of his handmaiden, she says, right? Her humility is basically her saying, I'm nobody important. What's going on here? Why in the world should he that is mighty magnify me? Well, but now all generations are going to call me blessed, she says. In fact, I think if you actually work through the story, why does she go to her cousin Elizabeth? Well, I think she's confused, upset, doesn't know what's going on. And Elizabeth, with John the Baptist in her womb, right? John the Baptist is leaping for joy. He's being a prophet already in her womb, right? And she's reassuring Mary. And it's after her saying, you know, calling her the mother of my Lord. After that, that's when Mary says, oh, my soul does magnify the Lord. For he that is mighty has done great things for me. She's not ready to say that right away. Right away, she's, it's just sheer obedience. She has no idea what's going on. She'll say, be it unto me according to your word. When she gets this human reassurance from Elizabeth, mm-hmm. that's when she bursts out in song and praise. Yeah. I've always been struck with the parallel of Elizabeth and Sarah. Mm. It's almost the same story in the New Testament. And then, of course, I go back to the Davidic covenant and how, how I look at Mary. So, so we might have a, a little different nuance there. Let, let me go back to the professor, doctor, smart guy. So we've got, <laughs> we've got two other questions here as we wind our time down. Talk to me about monotheism and the Trinitarian Godhead. I read your book. I didn't hear you talk at length about that. Now, obviously, we have the Trinity there. But why did the Nicene Creed focus on essentially a monotheistic with the Trinitarian Godhead has to be, I mean, this is a foundation, right? Right. The Nicene Creed is the great statement of the early church about the doctrine of the Trinity. It's rooted in the baptismal name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then it says that the Father is God, and it says that the Son is God, and it says that the Holy Spirit is God, mm-hmm. and it says that there's only one God, Right. That's going to give you lots of puzzles to work on. But one thing to be aware of is that the Nicene Creed is resolutely monotheistic, right? It doesn't even use the word three. Right. You don't need the word three in order to state the doctrine of the Trinity. You just need the creed and you need the name Father, Son, <laughs> and Holy Spirit. And if you want to count to three, you can. That's fine. But, but <laughs> it's really not about how God is three in one. It's about how God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so – each time you, you name one of these three, you describe the divinity of that person. And that's why you can also talk about three persons. But again, you don't need the, much of this, this technical terminology, right? You don't need to say three persons, right? You can. It's, it, that's good language. But the really important language is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It actually goes back to 1 Corinthians 8, 6, mm-hmm. where Paul says, look, there's a lot of, lot of gods out there. But for us, there's one God, the Father. And there's a lot of lords out there, but for us, there's one Lord, Jesus Christ. And that's how the creed actually goes. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, right? To call him Lord is to say the name of the Lord God of Israel belongs to him. That's, that's the secret behind that. So what we have is, I think, a, a deeply layered biblical theology of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
announced in the creed. Interesting, the creed comments, the Lord and giver of life who proceeds from the Father, and then you bracketed, and from the Son. Uh-huh. And that would, of course, Johannine theology would, he was very clear in the upper room discourse about he would have to go before he could send the paracole- the Holy Spirit. Right. Why does Dr. Carey omit <laughs> and from the Son? <laughs> All right, why is that in brackets? Right. So this is the, the part of, it's called the third article of the Creed. It's on the Holy Spirit. Yes. He's the, the Lord and giver of life who proceeds from the Father. That's how it was stated in the Creed of Nicaea in 325. Actually, no, that's not the Creed of Nicaea. In the Creed of Nicaea in 325, it just said we believe in the Holy Spirit. So okay. fast forward to 381, and the Council of Constantinople has this fuller creed that says we believe in the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father. Now, that he proceeds from the Father is right there in the upper room discourse in John. Right? Jesus says that. Yeah. He proceeds from the Father, but he's sent by the Son. And what happens is Augustine comes along, that guy again. He says, yeah, well, he's the spirit of the Father and the Son, right? And the Son sends him because the Spirit proceeds from the Father and from the Son. Now, that was not in the Nicene Creed in 381. It never got into the Nicene Creed in Greek in the Eastern churches. What happened is in the Western churches, in the Latin translation that was used in places like Spain in, say, the 600s, they started adding this bit saying that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and from the Son. It's one word in Latin, filioque. You'll you'll hear people talking about this. So, and the Son. The problem is that the Western church ended up putting that little phrase into the creed without consulting the Eastern church. And the Eastern church sort of said, "Wait, wait, wait a minute, not fair, right? On procedural grounds, it doesn't belong in the creed. And I think on procedural grounds, the Eastern churches win the argument, right? The, the Western church doesn't have a right to add this to the creed without talking to the East. Now, I do think— Denominations like, have never changed, Phil. Yeah. <laughs> well, but it's easy, to, it's easy to resolve the problem. All you have to do is be a Westerner who says, hey, the East is right. We ought to drop the clause, right? So, for example, like many Western Christians, I don't actually say that part of the creed when I recite it. There are times when the Pope will recite this and and leave that bit out as a way of saying, you can recite the creed that way and it's legitimate. If we could get over some bureaucratic problems, I think we could just sort of drop that from the creed and say, yes, we don't have to fight about this anymore. But lots of people have a vested interest in keeping the fight alive. I won't go into the details, but it's, it's nasty. And, you know, and the simplest way around it is for the West to say, let's drop it. We think it's true, but it's not necessary to the Christian faith so we can drop it from the creed. What is that? Essentials and non-essentials? Yeah, exactly. I think you end uh, you end on your big tome. I went with the history of Christian theology. You end with a, a very interesting conclusion to all things, which I hope you're right, but I think you're wrong. Um, <laughs> okay, we need let's, more let's time finish. to hash out some of these disagreements, Michael. Well, I'm going to come see you, and we're going to hash them all out. So, okay, final thoughts, Doctor Carey. Why should a believer in Christ? Western, Eastern, or otherwise, why is this creed something they should read, study, cherish, think through? As Martin Luther says, you know, my very favorite theologian, it's a summary of the gospel. It's a summary of what the scripture has to teach us about who God is and why this is good news. And especially the part about the incarnation, which begins for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven, became incarnate of the Virgin Mm -hmm. Mary and the Holy Spirit and was made human. That's really, really good news. And it's really nice to learn that by heart. 
Right? One of the reasons why you, re, you, know, you sing a favorite song over and over again is to get it in your heart. This is good news to keep in your heart, to say, why is the Son of God, the eternally begotten Son of God, why does he take on flesh? for us and for our salvation. Why was he crucified? For us and for our salvation. Why is he sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty? For us and for our salvation. This is really, really good news. So it's really good to sing it, right? If you happen to know, you know, mm -hmm. Western church music, right? It's set to music thousands of times, right? By some, yeah. of the, some of the best music around. You know, learn to sing it, learn to say it and get it in your heart and then you'll know something about who God is and why that's good news. Dr. Philip Carey, who is a distinguished author, professor, expert on – actually, I should call him Dr. Philip Augustine Luther Carey. <laughs> That's the name he really wants on his headstone. Oh, We've become good friends through these interviews, and I so love and appreciate your heart for theology and philosophy and integrating them. And I have learned so much from you in reading, and I know our listeners and friends do as well. If you don't know Dr. Carey, we'll have all the information in the show notes where you can find out more about him. The point of this particular interview is for you to go pick up the Nicene Creed, and if you are a Logos Bible software or FaithLife Bible software user, you can also buy an electronic version if you prefer that. I went ahead and got the hardback because I like these kinds of books to me are, are reflective and meditative, and it keeps me from opening my Logos and getting lost in word studies for the next two hours. So a Bible and a pen is still a good way to learn. Philip, always a delight. Thank you so much for coming back on the podcast, and I hope to see you soon. My pleasure. Let's go at this again sometime. Yeah. We will. God bless. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonomorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.